It's time for Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator of the contemporary scene. Here's Gene. Well, see, I, I, apparently my antenna is much more sensitive than yours. You guys don't notice much else until, until the damn house is on fire, then you notice it. But there is a commercial which shows the current trend among commercials, which is to portray life situations, but in a totally unlifelike way. So here's the scene where these four guys are riding along, and they're in a carpool. We all know that carpools are, are relevant, right? I'm using a Jersey phrase there. I hate to admit I do know that the word is relevant. However, I don't want to offend my friends on Route 3, who constantly refer to it as relevant. So, no, oh, no, 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 no. One must speak the language of the people if one is to speak to the people, right? I don't want no misunderstanding. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, you fight it the best you can. So I'm, I'm watching this commercial. It shows these guys in the carpool. That's relevant, right? Or if you are on the other side of the Wasatch Mountains, it's relevant. Now, you know, these, these, these four yahoos are riding along, and it seems like the guy in the back, in the, in the back, he's, he's not behind the driver. He's on the opposite side from the driver's seat, but he's sitting in the back seat. What's he doing? He's eating English muffins. Well, that's obviously, he didn't have his breakfast done, so he rushes out, jumps in the car, and he's eating English muffins. Well, the guy sitting next to the driver turns to him and says, Oh, wow, what a great smell of the car. That smell, he didn't talk like that. He talked, they say, I'm translating it so that you understand what he said. What he really said is, say that as a splendid aroma uh, at that point. See, I'm, I'm, trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to put Madison Avenue ease into people ease. He turned and said, that is a delicious delightful splendor aroma in this car. Someone is eating England, uh, Thomas's English muffins. And so in the back there, you see Clifford. He's got these two halves of English muffins. <laughs> he crunches again. And uh, he says, how about a bite? Well, Clifford, being a true modern society type member, now this is where they, they fit. He is totally selfish. He says, in effect, to hell with you. And, oh, terrible. At which point, the driver then says, say that certainly smells good. He says, ah, here, you can have half. You are the captain. You're paying obeisance to authority. So uh, he, <laughs> the guy's driving. So he gives him half of this. Now, I wonder how many people observing this commercial would like to have their carpools have a little elegance like this, where men get in and eat English muffins and uh, discuss the elegant flavor of Thomas's English muffins instead of what usually goes on in a carpool. Have you ever been in a carpool? And I will tell you about a carpool. When I was... <laughs> I'll, all right, I'll tell you about a carpool. I was in a carpool once, 
and I was I was at this age, 17, at this point, and I had this summer job, see, working in a steel mill. And I had this friend named Fergie, and uh, Fergie had a car, see, so Fergie Fergie was going to pick me up, and he was going to pick Schwartz up, and he was going to pick Flick up every morning. There was only one problem with this car. <laughs> only one problem with this car, see. It was an unbelievable gas hog. I mean, this car sucked up gas, man. I'm telling you, like an elephant at the water hole. You know, it, it, all it had, all it had to have there was a trunk. You know, just, just sticking out the front, and you could just stick it down into any puddle of gas, and it just suck it up, even when the motor's off. So here was this car. He and and another problem with our carpool, which you don't see in the TV commercials about carpools, was one our carpool took place at an ungodly hour. Fergie picked us all up at 5.30 a.m. Okay. Now, at 5.30 o'clock in the morning, I don't care what age you are, whether you're 17 or 120, you are not in the most jovial of moods. <laughs> no conceivable way. Say. So, we, I can remember... Uh, the, the, I'd, I'd hear Fergie's car, see, I'd hear it out in the front, and I'm still in bed, practically, you know, I'm just sort of dragging my, my you-know-what out of the sack, see, and I'm, I'm really feeling rotten, because what am I going to face today? I'm going to face a day in the steel mill. I'm not going to face a day watching the Mets play on bat day. I'm going to face a day in the steel mill, which is not at any point, uh, let's put it this way, one of the more favorite ways to spend an afternoon, uh, no, oh, no, it's not bad either. I'm not putting putting it down. It's just a job, but it was a hard, rough, mean job. So here it is, 5.30 in the morning, and it's cold. I mean cold, wet. I mean, the dew was down. It's summertime, and and I'm just dragging myself out of the sack, see, and I, and I, I had this alarm clock. It was a great alarm clock, see. I had an alarm clock that used to wind up about 20 minutes before it actually rang. It would start going, tick, 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 You ever seen that type? I mean, it was not an alarm clock. It just went off like a normal alarm clock at 5.30. It, went, it started to think about going off, like I say, about 20 minutes to 4. It would start making funny noise. Like, tick, tick, tick. It would go, tick, tick. I'd wake up, oh, God, no. Oh, gee. You know, and because the night before, after all, let's face it, one does not dedicate oneself to one's job. Uh, certainly at 17, one does not. And uh, I was not, uh, I had not entered a monastery when I took that job at the mill. So the night before, I had been uh, playing a pinball machine down at George's to roughly, uh, oh, you know, quarter after 12, uh, midnight, at which point we went down to the Red Rooster and uh, we, would have, uh, we would have root beer and uh, footlong hot dogs, which they specialized in the Red Rooster. They had footlong hot dogs. You ever had those? Yeah, they're foot-long. They really were. They're foot-long hot dogs. And the Red Rooster used to put in the middle of every foot-long hot dog <laughs> an American flag. It would stick out of it. They're like a toothpick with a little paper flag on it. Yeah. Oh, it was really jazzy, see. So you get this foot-long hot dog and drink A&W or Dad's Old Fashioned Root Beer, which uh, they also served there to great success at, uh, at the Red Rooster. So we're drinking the root beer. We played the pinball machine. And about 1.15 in the morning, I would come back to the house filled with foot-long hot dogs, Dad's old-fashioned uh, draft root beer, uh, occasionally Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper was uh, kind of big that time. That's a, you showed you were a connoisseur. 
when you drank Dr. Pepper instead of Dad's old-fashioned root beer. You know, you were sort of the outsider. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's all kinds of little ways <laughs> that you can prove that you're one of the, you know, one of the more imaginative people. So uh, I dragged back about 1 o'clock in the morning. Well, I, what, what did I do? Like a dummy? Do you think I went to bed right away? <laughs> You're kidding. No way. I would, uh, being a ham, see, I would go into, into my bedroom, I would turn on my rig, and the next thing you know, there I am, I'm in a QSO with some guy in Cleveland on 40 meters on CW, see. So we're talking back and forth. The next thing you know, I'm talking to a guy in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I would finish with that, and then somebody else would call me from Denver. And then I'm talking to a guy in San Diego, and it's really getting good. See, I'm working out to the West Coast, and you don't go to sleep while the West Coast is coming in, right? So uh, roughly about 3.45 a.m., there would be a yelling sound in my doorway, and it would be my mother dressed in her chenille bathrobe, with the uh, with the aluminum rheostats in the hair, you know. She says, will you get to bed? All that squeaking in here. She always referred to my radio as all that squeaking. So I'd say, oh, come on, Ma. And of course, here I am talking to a guy now in, in, uh, in Honolulu, and she calls it squeaking. She says, you get to bed in five minutes. She says, because I'm not going to be responsible when Ferguson shows up here tomorrow morning at 5.30, you won't get up. Oh, wow. You know, you, know, you live your life. But really, for the instant when you're a kid, you know, you do. You know, you do. 5.30 may never come. So, you know, at 5.30. Well, by about 4 o'clock, I am finally in the sack. Instantaneously, my alarm clock would begin to do that thing. It was an electric alarm clock. They're the worst kind. You know, the kind of little square plastic uh, West clocks, a little square plastic uh, case. Uh, that was white, you know, the kind, see? And uh, five minutes after I had gotten this alarm clock, it developed a crack right over the top of it. It came, in fact, with a little set of uh, of uh, tapes that you just taped, the, you know, <laughs> white uh, Johnson & Johnson adhesive tape. So I had Band-Aids and everything on it. It was my clock. And it would start doing that thing about uh, 4.45. It would start going, mm, and then it would stop. And it would go, mm, like it was just about... Well, it sounded like it had a case of uh, electronic indigestion. It was just about to do something really bad. And uh, I had it set for 5.15. When I was, it was a dumb alarm clock because, well, it wasn't accurate, see, because, you know, with the little tiny thing in the middle there, the little, little gold knob, the little gold pointer where it says where you set it, well, it didn't have, it, was, it just said it had midnight or 12 on the top. It had 3, it had 6. It had nine, and anything in between was just, what the hell, you know, who cares? Two or three hours difference, what matters, you know? I mean, you're going to get up, you're going to get up, see? So this thing would go off at the odd times. I'd set it at 5.15, sometimes it wouldn't go off. My mother would report long after I'm at work that the thing suddenly went off at 10.12, and, uh, you know, she almost flipped. She came running in from the from the outside there where she was messing with the with the roses or something, you know, and she thought the phone rang and she ran around the house and fell down the basement stairs. It was my dumb alarm clock. Well <laughs> I I you know, I don't know why I'm telling you this. Uh, it, it's just uh, you know, when when I hear the, the the when they tell me about carpools I get nervous because I hated it. See the carpool brought to me brings to mind all of it. It brings to mind waking up at five thirty in the morning and feeding like you're your eyeballs are made out of cinders. You know that awful feeling. Your head won't uh, focus on anything. 
And uh, my mother insisted on getting up. He insisted, which meant there was no way I could chicken out. See, if she didn't get up, I could just, you know, just sort of kind of sleep through or yell out the window at uh, Ferguson. Girl, I'm sick! Go on! You know, another go at that. But she's up. So she, you know, there I am. So I come staggering into the kitchen. I got my safety shoes on. And uh, we had a rule, see, in this, in this mill. You had to wear this hard hat. So I had my hard hat on. And uh, it's 5, 5.30 in the morning. And Ferguson was one of these guys who later grew up to be an accountant. This is a typical accountant thing. Well, no, no. Accountants really believe in, in time schedules and all that kind of stuff, see. And, and uh, Ferguson would show up exactly. He made me mad. Exactly. At 5.30. I mean, it was like... On the second, 5.30, you'd hear that damn car go, wow, wow, out there. See, he had these Hollywood pipes on it, see. And uh, he, he, I mean, always there, he'd go, wow, 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 And uh, he'd gun the motor a couple of times. Well, he'd wake up the whole neighborhood. But nevertheless, it was exactly at 5.30. Now, if he'd gotten there at 5.25, I would not be as mad as the fact that he got there exactly at 5.30. If just once he got there at 529. I used to hate Ferguson. He had that smuggler. He looked like Dagwood. That dumb... Yeah, his hair stick up. He had a dumb, funny look and all like that. And, uh, yeah, he was always dumb. And he was always talking about, uh, Hey, you guys, did you see what they are? And he was always happy in the morning. If there's anything I can't stand, it's a guy at 530 in the morning. And he always would say the, the, the same thing. He'd always say the same thing. You know what he said? How are you making it this morning? Well, the first 28 times I, I accepted that as, a, you know, kind of a nice thing to say. But after that, it got to the point where he would say that. I'd say, shut up! And then I started to invent things like, uh, my leprosy's back today. Or, uh, well, I got diphtheria this morning. And I, <laughs> I said good things in the car. And it's funny, it got to the point where we wouldn't say anything. See, Schwartz, Schwartz was an absolutely truculent, silent guy in the morning. Schwartz did not say anything, except that you'd smell Schwartz's lunch. Schwartz, he had, a, he had an aromatic lunch with him. Schwartz loved soft salami. And now, now he had, and he he take he'd take a bag of about twenty eight soft salami sandwiches. He loved to eat them all day long at the mill. See, he'd, he'd always eaten soft salami, and he would eat it on rye bread. Well, I don't know whether you've ever gotten into a Ford at five thirty in the morning and be greeted by a blast of soft salami aroma when you are not a soft salami fan at 5.30 in the morning. As a matter of fact, even to this day, I'm, I'm just the kind of guy that's not interested in anything to eat till roughly 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Then I will consent only to consider something. But 5.30 in the morning to open up that damn car and I get a blast of salami. Well, Schwartz had the good taste to do nothing except sit in the corner and look like a toad. Just look mad. He didn't say anything. So I'd get in there, oh, God, that smell. And I, I always sat in the back on the right where the guy that's eating the Thomas's English muffins sits. See, Schwartz would sit on the other side. I'd sit in the back there. Well, <laughs> I would always have my lunch. Now, what did I carry in my lunch? Well, I, I was just getting out of the Twinkie phase. And, uh, <laughs> and I had made the switch to devil dogs. 
It was a touchy time in my life when I, you know, when you go through these changes, you know, and you, you, you don't want to be reminded of them. And one day I would, uh, and then I also went, through, I was going through a period too, where I went through the uh, strawberry pie period. You know, the little pies, you know, uh, Mrs. Applerot's pies, you know, those kind of pies. Well, I, I, <laughs> I was going through a period when, when I would, you know, I'd look forward to my strawberry pie or I would have my pineapple. I love the pineapple pie. I don't know why. Now I can't understand, but I like pineapple pie. See, I'd have this pineapple pie. And, and I would get in the car and, and Flick would invariably, invariably, Flick something on the front. He would turn to me and say, hey, he said, you got a pineapple pie today? He wants to eat my pineapple pie. Well, then I would say to him back, I'd say, and I suppose you've got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich which is going to make me throw up if you try to give me any of it at this hour of the morning. And he'd sit there with his lunch on his lap. I'd sit with my lunch and we would say absolutely nothing. And the car would roar out into the traffic and we would get in this long line of cars and we would drive forward. Now that's the way this carpool went for roughly six weeks day in and day out until the day that the disaster hit. Oh, you want to hear what happened, huh? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, the, uh, my feeling, uh, I guess about uh, mankind, <laughs> is that you put any group of people together long enough and you got yourself one heck of a stew. Uh, no, it just it just uh, got to go this way. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, the way man is. Man, man has a problem. Uh, among many other problems, but one basic problem is man is two things. One thing, man is a herd creature. Oh yes, don't don't deny it. You're going to pretend. No, not me. I am an individual. I am. Not. Yes, friend. And you notice you're calling up from from uh, Staten Island to say it. You are not calling up from the Arctic Circle to tell me that that uh, man is a herd <laughs> herd creature. In other words, he can't he can't stop wanting to be with other men, or you know, uh, being with the with the scene. That's what all records are about. What do you think love is about? As a matter of fact, no, all, practically every record ever written is about love, at least in the United States, where love uh, is uh, considered the universal solvent. Incidentally, this is also part of the magic uh, solution problem that we have. You notice there are no solutions to real problems. <laughs> think about that for a minute. Well, let's take New York City's problem right now. Now, when when uh, when the mayor was elected, in fact, every mayor in the last uh, hundred years that I can remember, every time he's elected in New York, he's elected on the premise that we are going to, at long last, have fiscal responsibility in New York. We are going to trim the fat out of the New York taxpayers' uh, budget, right? Now, how many times have you heard this? Well, now, we tend to blame the mayor when it doesn't happen, but not so. In New York, have you noticed that every last group, I mean every group, even some group that, uh, say, uh, spends a, a little city office that, say, uh, sends rare stamps to Patagonia whenever New York City turns out rare stamps, and uh, that office sends them to Patagonia at that point, uh, when they are uh, threatened with a budget cut, the head of the the little committee appears on television, interviewed by Bill Butel. He appears and says, I do not propose to stand still when the city 
fathers, if you can call them that, of the city of New York, propose to cut our budget, which for over 25 years we have fought to maintain this extremely important sensitive office, which is giving to the city of New York things which the city of New York... And, you know, forget it. Forget it. This crowd is going to fight to the last. And since each one of them is a voter and each one of them is a member of a minority group, on top of that, forget it's Bill. So uh, <laughs> every last group. Uh, and, and, and then there's one group today who, who comes on constantly and implies that the reason we're in trouble is because the bankers somehow are, are, uh, are doing it to New York. Well, it seems to me that it's not the bankers that pay the bill in New York. It seems to me it's the taxpayers. But you don't want to say that. Because <laughs> if you say that, I mean, you're liable to get yourself in trouble. So you pretend it's the bankers. Well, the facts of the matter are that that's one of the basic problems with mankind. It's not just New York. We are a selfish creature. <laughs> I mean, we are a selfish creature. Let's face it. There isn't one of you out there that doesn't secretly want every damn thing in the world he can get. Basically. Now, it may be different things than the other guy wants. Say, for example, uh, you want to be a star. You don't want everybody else to be a star. What the hell good is it being a star if, if everybody in the block is a star? You agree? Okay. Right there. That means you don't want to be a star. You want to be bigger than the others. All right, <laughs> all right. Now that now that's the, 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 there's the basic problem, and and uh, and and on the other hand, you want the others to stay in their place. Now, have you noticed every union that gets on uh, says things like this in the today in today today's crisis in New York? You hear the union leaders say things like this: "I had a head of the amalgamated widget workers. We refused categorically to accept any kind of cuts at all." The, the mayor has denied to come on and say we cannot have that eight-month vacation which we negotiated in good faith two years ago, and now we can't have it. We ain't going to stand still for this. In fact, we say to you that the danger that comes from being one of the widget workers in the city of New York, we want more money. Or we're going to strike, we're going to tie up all widgets in this whole damn city. Now, you come to me and you say... The city has to have some budget cuts, and I agree with that. Why do we pay them damn guys over there at the sanitation department? What are You see, in other words, <laughs> every last guy in this town wants the city to have what is called fiscal responsibility, but it has nothing to do with his group, because they are already very responsible. We all know that. <laughs> so, this is the basic problem of mankind. And you want to hear what happened to our to our carpool? One day, just out of the blue, Ferguson is driving along. And now Ferguson, I must add another thing that Fergie did. Ferguson had another thing that he used to do. He hummed constantly. And he always hummed the same thing. And it still runs through my head. I can't get out of it. Where he ever picked it up, I don't know. He always hummed. You want to hear what he hummed? Look at that slob there. Hey, hey, shut up, will you? He's hollered in another car. And I'm sitting in the back there saying, and Flick, what did Flick do at all times? 
At all times, Flick would suck on his teeth. He's always going... Well, at first, I didn't... I, you know, I was not aware of this. When me and Flick were playing baseball, and Flick was in center field, and I was playing third base, I was not aware of this disgusting Flick habit. He was constantly doing this. Schwartz, on the other hand, Schwartz seemed to glower. Now, I never realized that Schwartz was always in such a bad mood. So Schwartz would sit in the corner and just look mad. Well... One day, out of the blue, and, then, and this, is, this, is a, this is the kind of allegory, friends, that uh, could be very well applied to New York City. Now, it was quite obvious that all four of us were getting some kind of benefits out of this. For one thing, we were all riding to work. And that was pretty important, because we all had this job, right? Now, had we been able to ride to work in comparative peace it would have worked out pretty well. I wouldn't be telling you this story. But one day, we're riding along, and we're just popping along over a bunch of railroad tracks. See, we had a lot of railroad tracks, and that also was very irritating. At 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, and this car had no, no shocks at all. This car had the, the shocks had gone out of this car about the time that the third owner owned it. And uh, Fergie, of course, was about number 28 in the line, see? So this car had no shocks whatsoever. And we'd chip in for the gas on the thing. That's all right, see? But we would go over the, over the, uh, the L&N tracks. Now, the L&N, the Louisville and Nashville, right? We'd go over the L&N tracks, and as we'd go over the tracks, this thing You know, and everything would go up and down. And, and it had bad kingpins, see? And when, it, when we'd go over the tracks, it would shimmy. And it would go, and finally Ferguson would get it under control, see? And he'd immediately go, Schwartz, all of a sudden, one after, one morning, one after, after just an ordinary night, I had been at the bowling alley, I hadn't seen Flick the night before, I saw Schwartz briefly at the Red Rooster, Fergie had dropped by for about five minutes, an ordinary night. It's just an ordinary thing that set it off. We go over this track, and Ferguson is fighting the car. It's going like that. He's trying to get us to work. Now I look back on it. All of a sudden, Schwartz hollers out. Never said a thing for months in the back. Schwartz hollers out and says, When the hell are you going to get this damn thing fixed? Ferguson turns around, stops humming, and says, If you don't like riding in my Chevrolet, Schwartz, you can damn well get out and walk. Schwartz says, All right! It just blew up. Ferguson says, you're, you're, you're kidding, right? Schwartz says, no. And Ferguson says, well, neither am I. He pulls up to the curb. Schwartz gets out. Well, we started out again, and there's Schwartz. Schwartz just turns around and walks away. We start out, and I'm sitting in the back, and I, I said then, I said... I said, you know, we should have been we should have been a little easier on Schwartz. I said, now how the heck is he going to get to work? At that point, Ferguson says, it's none of my damn business how he gets to work. And Flick turns around to me and says, are you going to take the side of that guy, Schwartz? Are you kidding? I said, Flick. I said, Flick. That reminds me, Flick. Now that we're being honest, Flick. Will you stop sucking on your tooth for just one minute? At least stop sucking on your tooth while I am talking to you. And Flick says, <laughs> He's Ferguson, Ferguson. Hey, Fergie, pull over the curb. Pull over the curb, Fergie. And Ferguson, what's, what's eating you? And Flick says, pull over the curb. I'm not going to ride in a car with this guy. 
I've had enough of this guy. He gets in there every morning, and I can smell that damn pie. Every morning, I'm so sick and tired of smelling pineapple pie. I can't stand it! I said, well, at that point, I said something, which I cannot say in the air, and I, I, I told Flick what he could do, and uh, Flick took exception to that. Ferguson pulls over to the curb. Flick gets out and says, the hell with you. I'll go with my uncle from now on to work. And away we went. We drove for about two blocks, and finally Ferguson turned to me and says, look. I ain't bringing my car to work no more. I said, you're not. He says, no, forget it. He says, I'm tired of you getting out of that house every morning and yelling because you're mad because you don't like to get up at 5.30 in the morning. You got a job, you should start. I said, wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me how I should act in the morning? He says, yeah. I said, okay. Forget it. Let me out. That ended the carpool. By the way, it took maybe two and a half years for us to at least even start talking civilly. It never got back to their original way. So, friends, there's a lesson in that for all of us. Man is destined, like the great grizzly, to go his own way. Unlike, however, the great grizzly, he's got a thing inside of him that tries to pretend that all the other grizzlies like to go his way, too. Therein lies the great conundrum, the paradox. One word of warning, friends. If you're going to get a ride in a carpool, beware of salami eaters. They are dangerous. You've been listening to Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator on the contemporary scene.